uh, chapter 3 today. We're going to look at the first 20 verses. And uh, let me pray for us and then kind of introduce the subject matter. Thank you for the name of Jesus Christ that was given that we might have life both here on planet earth now and later in the new heaven and the new earth. And that verse reminds us, as did the one we memorized last month, that Jesus is a unique name. He's not one of a hat full of names that we just pull a name out of a hat and say, well, I'm going to run with that one. And that you had a sovereign plan on how to redeem people. You, you, you sketched it out. You landed on your son. You sent him. You just didn't send a document to us, but you actually sent your son to us that we might be transformed, that we might become your children, that we might have um, a family and a future. And so grateful. And for those that might be here, don't know that experience yet. They have not been um, brought face to face with their need for you. Maybe today would be the day which that would become clear to them that their need is not a new car, that their need is not a new job, their need is not a new husband or new wife, their need is not a new career or a new college professor, new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. Their need is a savior. And I pray that you would muzzle the enemy today who hates you, who hates your people and hates your gospel, even hates the people who serve him that you would bind him so that he'd have no effect during our time. Lord, help me to um, help my mind to remain uncluttered, unfettered, that the Holy Spirit would uh, speak to me and by your grace through me. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a substance that uh, started being widely mined around the world in the mid-1800s, late-1800s. Uh, It was relatively cheap to get out of the ground. And because it had such tremendous fireproofing and heat-resistant properties, uh, it began to be used in a wide variety of materials, everything from ceiling insulation to wall insulation, plaster, um, insulation around pipes. Um, It's used in the shipbuilding industry. It's called asbestos. Uh, my wife and I uh, began raising our family right up the street here. Where we bought a home back in, <clears throat> excuse me, 1975 in Paradise. Lived there 13 years. And we had, uh, on the outside was uh, not vinyl siding or wood um, or brick, asbestos siding. And I remember back then vaguely realizing that asbestos was a, not, a, not good stuff, but still the 70s, it, we didn't have a grasp on just how bad it really was. The EPA tried to outlaw it in 1989 in the U.S., was not successful, although a lot of restrictions were placed on it. There are still products being made with asbestos today, even though 50 nations around the country have outlawed the material. Back in the 1920s or so, word began to leak out of the medical community that there is a, a problem with people who are prolong, uh, exposed in a prolonged way to uh, asbestos. Uh, about six different kinds come out of the ground, but all of them have, it looks like uh, f- fuzzy, 
cotton almost, although all the fibers are very straight, not curled at all. And as I was doing research on this, I, I came to realize this, ancient, this house that we lived in was probably 80, 90 years old when we bought it, had an ancient boiler there, and I, I realized the piping that was coming out of the boiler uh, was also wrapped with uh, asbestos insulation. I also discovered it's quite possible that the plaster and the walls and the ceilings, uh, many of which Betty and I ripped down over the years as we remodeled, um, with nothing but a particle mask and set of goggles on, may have also had asbestos in it. Uh, this stuff is deadly. They believe the largest uh, ongoing tort um, in the nation has to do with asbestos. And they believe just in the shipbuilding industry alone in America that there have been 100,000 deaths, uh, lung cancer, mesothelioma, or people who are currently living with a terminal diagnosis of one of those two. Asbestos literally is a matter of life and death. The subject that we're going to talk about this morning is, is something that um, if you've come to Keystone, you hear about it fairly regularly. If you're here as a guest this morning, maybe not so much. And yet it's a, it's a topic that the Bible talks about a great deal. It's a topic that I'm convinced may explain why some Christians seem to have nothing but failure mark their lives. It's, they seem to be playing both sides, sides of the street. On Sunday morning, singing the worship songs and proclaiming the glory of God, and the rest of the week, living for sin, self, and Satan. I think it might be a reason that we are seeing a, um, a laxness and a weakness in the backbone of the Church of Jesus Christ in America. And that is the message of repentance that perhaps is not being taught as richly as the Bible does. And so this morning, we're going to read and listen to the words of John the Baptist. And I want to talk about whether or not, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not that's a message that just goes out to people before Jesus died, or is that a message for people today? Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Let me just stop there and say the reason all, for all this detail is because Luke, as we know, was a doctor. He was a physician. Uh, as such, he was a scientist and he was careful. And he knew that by including details like this that could be checked out by historians, it would help confirm that there were other details that may be more difficult to be checked out, but there could be a reliability on what he's communicating. So it's simply a way to authenticate the message that he had. Middle of verse 2. Uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Now, we haven't seen John since chapter 1 of Luke when we were told about um, his birth was predicted to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and then they had this little baby. Um, now he's all grown up, and he has a message from God. Don't miss that. Verse 3. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins. 
and turn to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. 700 years before John was born, Isaiah predicted that there would be someone who would come down the road who would precede the Lord's Messiah and, and not do literal earth moving and lowering mountains and raising up valleys and filling them in and straightening out roads, but rather that there would be a moral and an ethical message from God that he would preach to the people that would prepare them who believed that they were morally good enough and that would prepare them for what Jesus came to bring them. Because after all, Jesus did not come for good people. He says, I, I didn't come to, to minister to those who believe that they're righteous already. I came as a doctor to those who know they're a mess. Verse 7, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. Isn't that a warm fuzzy? Steph King just started her ministry here this week, uh, part-time role as a connection coordinator. And she's going to be working with the ushers and the greeters and, and the parking lot attendants and all the people, kind of the, the first faces that you see in the morning. Can you just imagine that you come in in the morning and an usher shakes your hand and says, you snake, welcome to Keystone. You brood of snakes. I mean, they're coming to him for baptism. You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants, descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked, well, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt, uh, corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. And what should we do, asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, now I baptize you with water, but somebody is coming soon who is greater than I am so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. That's a great, that line is a great reminder that good news, the good news and warnings are not mutually exclusive. John also publicly criti criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, 
and for many other wrongs he had done. And so Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. Now let's back up to these people who are coming to John to be baptized and raise the question whether or not they heard a different message than John was preaching. It seems that they did. Otherwise, why such a harsh welcome? Why such mean-spirited words, you brood of snakes, unless they're responding to a different message than he's preaching? Let's go back again in the early verses and see what his message was. Verse 3, people should be baptized, and maybe it was that that was all they heard. People should be baptized. In other words, the emphasis on is on a religious ritual. This is a, remains a problem today where people think that they can be made right with God by a religious ritual. Baptism, classic problem. We encourage people not to have their children be baptized until they're at least 12 years old for a, because we desperately don't want children thinking and they haven't developed a lot of abstract thinking capabilities yet. We don't want them thinking that that is salvation. I shared before the story when uh, we were in the Middle East and I was tour leader for a group and I didn't know this ahead of time, but find out that to, Two days from now, we're going to be at this baptismal site at the Jordan River. And people on the bus who want to get baptized can be baptized. And guess who they're going to get to do the baptism? The preacher on the bus. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute here. Um, we, have to have some, uh, we have to have some parameters for this. And so I'm sitting with them and trying to find out from them, why, why do you want to be baptized? And one girl told me, she said, I, I, I want to be baptized so I, so I can be a better person. I'm like, no. But this is, this is common. This has been common down through the ages. In Jesus' day, there was an ongoing problem. Jesus was butting heads time and time again with very devout Jews because they believed that if they did this, they did this, they didn't do this. These were the kinds of things that made them right with God. If they gave their tithes down at the temple, made them right with God. If they prayed down at the temple, that made them right with God. If their boys or themselves were circumcised on the eighth day, that made them right with God. And the women were covered by the circumcision of the males in the family. Religious rituals. In the Roman Catholic Church today, people are encouraged to go, <clears throat> excuse me, to, go to confession each week or whenever, we have friends that he, he would get up every morning and go to confession before he went to work. And I mean by that, that he would leave his house at a quarter of four in the morning and go to the confessional and then his one hour commute to his business. Why? Because the understanding was if I go and I do confession, now I'm right with God and I get, I'm given an assignment of penance to do. I say so many Hail Marys or I say so many rosaries and that kind of takes care of my sin until the next time and I'm right with God for now. And it seems as if some of these people missed the rest of John's message, which was this, be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. That was the message. Not just be baptized, but be baptized to show this, to give some outward evidence of what's taken place in your heart. 
Now, there's another, there was another seeming problem here, and John addresses in great length here in a couple of verses. He says, don't just say to each other, verse 8, don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nada. There are people today who are convinced that they are right with God because their parents were right with God or because grandpa used to be a pastor. I've got some sort of in because I, I'm connected through my fraternal ties, my family ties. I have an in to God's uh, acceptance. And God's up in heaven saying, I, I don't have any grandkids. I don't have any nieces and nephews. I have sons and daughters, and that's it. And so if you want to be a child of mine, you come in the same way that your mom or dad did or your grandparents did or your aunt, your uncle, your sister. The only way you can be made right with me is through the merits of my son's blood and broken body. Don't say you're Jewish to the core. Big deal, John says. You can trace your lineage back to Abraham. Big deal. Paul spends three chapters on this in the middle of Romans saying, look, just because you had, you had the Bible to read and you had the prophets to listen to and you had the covenants and you had the patriarchs does not mean that you are right with God because of all those things that you had ancestrally. And John goes so far as to say, look, God has his ax out. And you, you say you're a tree in the line and the root of Abraham, you're a tree. God has his ax out and he's going to cut every tree off from that root that does not bear fruit. You see, what, what John was talking about here is this matter of repentance. Now, this is a fancy word we don't use in, I don't think, in any other context other in, than our relationship with God and a relationship with each other. My guess is that this week in your schools, on your job, probably in your home, uh, in your neighborhood, nobody mentioned the word repentance. Now, the Old Testament word for repentance has the idea of turning, turning, doing a 180, not a 360, a 180. And the New Testament word, metanoeo, has the idea of changing my mind about something. And you should blend those two as you think about it. In other words, repentance is a decision that I am, I am no longer infatuated with sin. I'm turning from my love affair with sin and I'm going the other direction. The metanoiado is, I'm changing my mind about what I used to want. And don't misunderstand me. It does not mean I am now going to promise God I'll never sin again. This is a matter of the mind. The behavior is going to be the outworking of God's grace in helping us live out what we've decided in our minds. It's not going to be done perfectly. At times, it's not going to look very pretty. But that initial determination I am at done with sin has to be determined. And this is what I meant when I said at the beginning, I think there are a lot of Christians today or professing Christians today who have no victory over sin in their lives precisely because they thought Christianity meant I accept Jesus, end of story. 
And it's interesting, we're going to get into more of this a little bit later, but throughout the New Testament, this is not just a John the Baptist thing. Right before Jesus went back to heaven, Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Jesus said that the the message, his message, the good news that he brought, that message is going to be preached throughout the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And what is, how does he describe the message? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And sometimes we're taking a false gospel, I'm I'm afraid these days, we're taking a false gospel to people who desperately need to hear the true gospel, who are not born again, and we're telling them all you need to do is say, do this. You pray this prayer, you're in, you're good to go. And to those people who live a life of ungodliness and profess one thing, but they live something else, John's like, stop. And the message is consistent. Jesus says, stop. The apostle Paul says, stop. The apostle Peter says, stop. The apostle John says, stop. James says, stop. This message of repentance is a New Testament message. Now, please don't misunderstand here. When Paul's, or I'm sorry, when John is talking about produce fruit or deeds in keeping with repentance, good behavior and good deeds, turning from sin, or good deeds themselves, the good behavior, this is not repentance. It is rather the authentication of repentance. In other words, Pastor Charlie and and I and other pastors, when we sit with people who, who are deeply enmeshed in sin, we feel not only the um, that it's okay to, but rather the responsibility to press into people and say, are you confident that you know Jesus? And they may well, but we feel it's so vital that we ask that question. It'd be awful if we would just gloss over that and say, you're living like hell, but you're confident of heaven. We're going to go with what you say. Because all of us have to give an account one day of the ministry that we had here on planet Earth. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced when I say that baptism is, I'm sorry, repentance is a matter of life and death, that it is just that. That's not a metaphor. It's not a cute cliche. It's a, it's a matter of life and death. Now, he says in verse 9, uh, 9 through 14, he gives some examples of what fruit from true repentance looks like. He gives some examples to the um, people who have plenty and need to share with others. He gives examples to tax collectors who were notoriously corrupt and always padded their pockets with extra uh, charges. He gave examples to the soldiers who often were paid poorly, and so they compensated and made up for their pay by, you know, pillaging through the countryside, taking advantage of people that were weaker than them, didn't have weapons to protect themselves, and so forth. And all of it's interesting, all of these things are, you know, some some things that we wouldn't necessarily think. Well, like, where's the conversation about sex sins? Uh, why didn't he say, you know, run from adultery? It's not that those weren't included, but some of the things that maybe we think are a little bit less, uh, less important, he's like, this is really important that you share with people who are in need. It's the fruit of repentance. It's evidence that God has done a work of grace in your life. 
Now, I'm so fearful today that in the body of Christ, that we're doing, um, let's, let's call them ethical offsets. Do you, know, do you know what I mean when I talk about carbon offsets? Carbon offsets. Environmental term. All right, let me try to explain to you. I think I have enough of a handle on, to understand it. Uh, there are companies in, the, in America that are big polluters. And uh, we haven't signed the Kyoto Protocol, so we are not bound by what they decided and other countries have, have made this law. It's not law in America. But if you are a polluter, but what, um, what your industry uh, produces is so needful that the government's not going to shut you down, you can go on the carbon market. I don't understand how all this works, but you can pay money, essentially pay money that serves as investment dollars for other businesses that are green and that are bringing more health to the environment. So basically what you're doing is continuing to pollute, but you're paying money to kind of offset the sting from your pollution. Now here's how that looks. Here's how that looks in some professing Christians' lives. Let me give you some examples, starting with the one we looked at several weeks ago. Remember the rich young ruler? He had come to Jesus and, <clears throat> excuse me, come to Jesus and said, what must I do uh, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And then he listed five of the Ten Commandments. And he says, yeah, I've kept them all since my youth. To which Jesus says, one thing you lack. Okay, you've kept those five commandments. He didn't mention the other five. But one thing you still lack, because Jesus knows what's in a person's heart. And what was in this man's heart was an idolatry of money. And Jesus said, I want you to go out. I want you to sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the man said, hmm, no, I, I, I like my money. You see, he would have been perfectly happy if Jesus would have just said, just keep those five commandments. That's, that's all. But when Jesus said, all in for you, my friend, all in for you is going to look like this. He's like, no, no. I'll do this, but not this. This, but not this. And so we have people saying today, I, I, I must still be cheating on my husband, but I go to church every Sunday they're trying to do some sort of behavioral offset, spiritual offset. I don't know. You can't really say this repentance offset because they're not repenting of their ongoing sin. Someone might say, I, I, yeah, I despise people in a certain ethnic group, uh, a certain religious group. I can't stand those people. But... There's other things about me that offset that. And so I give 10% of my money in church every Sunday. And so that offsets this. Or somebody says, um, I may be a mean husband, but at least I come home after work. Most of the guys I work with hang out in the bars for another two, three hours and then come home. Listen, if you're mean to your wife, she's probably grateful if you do stay at the bar two, three hours. That's that much less time she has to put up with you, your treatment of her. 
Somebody says, I don't have time to help people in the church, but I teach Sunday school. That's my spiritual gift. Despite the fact that the Bible from uh, New Testament from front to back talks about us ministering practical demonstrations of love to one another. Not everybody in the church, but there should be, there should be some members of our church family that we care about, invest in, help with practical ways, whether it's meals after surgery, whether it's financial help, whether it's just calling them on the phone, seeing how they're doing, listening to them, praying for them. And the spiritual gift of teaching does not offset that call in our lives. Now, that, that may sound more mild to you, and yet the constant cry of the New Testament to love one another should bring that to the surface. My guess is that there are some of us here who are doing that very kind of offset, where we're playing games with God in a particular area of our lives, whether it's something uh, as mundane, if you want to call it that, as cheating on our taxes or fooling around with someone who's not our husband and wife or having stolen from, a, from a, uh, our boss um, or despising people and treating them that way and justifying wickedness, wicked behavior by doing this over here and that this good thing over here will offset that. And I think John would say to us, brood of snakes. Now, the question that some Christians ask today is, is repentance really the gospel message? In other words, Keith, you're talking about turning from sin, changing my mind about sin, turning and going the other direction, but I haven't heard you focus on Jesus. And that's a fair question. So is repentance really necessary for salvation? Philip Riken puts it this way, repentance is the on-ramp on to salvation. The West, Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, although repentance is not any satisfaction for sin, that's Jesus' death that does that, satisfies for sin. Although repentance is not any satisfaction for sin and does not cause the forgiveness of sins, parentheses, since forgiveness is an act of God's voluntary grace in Christ, yet it is necessary for, to all sinners and no one may expect to be forgiven without it. Now, when people started to question John and ask him whether or not, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet like Moses that we were being prepared to expect? Are, are, are you the one who's going to be called the, the Lamb of God? Are, are you the one who's going to be the son of David? Are, are you the one we're expecting? And John is very quick to say, no. When the Messiah comes, he's going to have a better baptism than I do. When, when the Messiah comes, um, he's going to be more important than I am. But he too will call for you to repent. And those who do repent, described here in chapter 3 as the wheat, he's going to bring into his barn. But the chaff... And I think the picture here is one who does not repent. 
will be burned with never-ending fire, verse 17. Now, this is not a message, again, that's unusual for Jesus and the rest of his ministry. Luke chapter 3, I'm sorry, 13, verse 3. He's talking about different people who, who were killed. And he says, um, you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. The most important sermon that was ever preached, I think, in the Bible is the one that was preached by Peter in the day of Pentecost. And listen to what he says. I mean, the, the, he's preaching away. <laughs> this is a guy who just a couple weeks ago uh, threw Jesus under the bus, pretended he didn't know him. And now he's got this power of the Holy Spirit as he's preaching and the response in verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? What do we do now? We're convicted. We've, we've heard what you've said. We're convicted now. Tell us what to do. And, and Peter replied, verse 38, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 20, verse 21 is probably, in my opinion, the most art clear articulation of the full elements of the gospel in all the Bible, even more so than John 3.16. Paul says, I preach the same gospel message to Gentile people as I did to Jewish people. And that is that people must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I desperately want to remove any illusions to you that you can come to Christ and not deal with sin. I don't want you to leave here under the impression that you can continue to mill about, indulge in, delight in, and continue your love affair with sin and God be okay with that if you come to him. And if you are a professing Christian, I don't want you to leave here thinking that you can do the same and that those areas in your life that you have been playing God in instead of letting God be God in, let you leave here thinking God's okay with your sin. After all, Jesus paid it all, and he did. The ground, of, uh, the ground of our salvation is not repentance. The introduction to our salvation is repentance. The ground of our salvation, the foundation on which we have forgiveness of sins, is 100% completely and totally Jesus died, buried, and raised to life on the third day. That's the gospel. But the entrance to the gospel is a repentance. God wants to know whether or not the sins that Jesus died for, you're willing to make a clean break with. And I think God wants to ask all of us, me included, that question this morning. Are we willing to make a clean break with sin? Now, make no mistake about it, the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. The very first 
thesis, the first point in Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed into the door of the Wittenberg Castle went like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So in the mornings when I open my Bible and I pray before I read, I say, I say God, by the Holy Spirit, help me start a conversation with you this morning out of your word. Draw to mind, as I read the scriptures, the things that will produce praise and worship in my life and thanksgiving in my lips, on my lips for you, who you are and what you've done. Next I pray, and as I go through this text, may the Holy Spirit speak to me about areas that I need to repent of. Repent in. And then I next pray, say, God, help me as I read through these chapters that I might be mindful of the people and the situations and the organizations that I need to pray for and intercede for this morning. But your life as a Christian was always meant to be an ongoing life of repentance. My life was meant to be an ongoing life of repentance. Now, let's say that... Um, you had a standing date. You're a couple and you have a standing date uh, Friday nights at uh, another couple's house, Bill and Julie's. And you go there because you enjoy the fellowship, you enjoy the Bill and Julie, they're nice people. Uh, you always have a good time and Julie makes to die for tacos. So that's every Friday night. So um, some uh, where along the way, um, Betty and I live on that same street that Bill and Julie live on. This is a lousy illustration. It's the best I can come up with. And we get, start to get acquainted with you. And uh, I say, you know, some Friday night, you're going to have to come over to our house. We have, Betty makes this amazing chicken lasagna. Can I get an amen to that? And uh, we want to have you over for chicken lasagna. And, and uh, they said, well, but we have this standing date at Bill and Julie's for tacos every Friday night. I'm like, we understand. But we're just saying we'd like to offer you dinner Friday night, chicken lasagna, our home, whenever you're interested. And so one night we get a call. It's a Wednesday evening. And sure enough, it's, it's, it's you and you're calling and say, we'd like to take you up on that um, invitation for chicken lasagna this Friday night. And um, we say, that's great. Can you be here at 6 o'clock? Well, um, actually, we're going to go to Bill and Julie's first for tacos. And then we thought we'd come up to your place afterward. And I say... I'm sorry, we're eating at 6 o'clock. If you want to come for dinner, that's when we're going to eat. Well, but can't we do tacos and chicken lasagna? Sorry. And we don't really know what's going to happen, but we make chicken lasagna, we put it on, and we, we sit the table for four. And sure enough, at about 10 to 6, our door, doorbell rings, and there you stand, and you say, we decided we're not going to go to Bill and Julie's for tacos tonight. We turned and went the other direction. 
You see, we can't have it both ways. God never meant for us to have it both ways. The thing that Jesus died for you and me about, he died so that we would put away. Do we do it perfectly? Will we, no matter how repentant we are? No. But this is the on-ramp to salvation, where we say, anything, God, anything you hate, I choose to hate. Anything that brings you grief and that put my Savior on the cross with, it's going to grieve me. And by your grace, and, and brothers and sisters, listen, whether you're repenting, whether we're repenting as Christians, or whether we're coming to faith and our initial repentance, we can't do this on our own. But the God who loves you so much that he gave us one and only son to die for you has offered to give us all the grace we need to do it all. Philippians 2.13, a God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Let's pray together.